Hello and welcome to another episode of Coffee and Conservation, a laid-back podcast where we discuss everything from cool animals, conservation, the environment, and what we can do to help. I'm Robert Pike, a field journalist for the Global Conservation Force, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal, a world-renowned rhino conservationist and president of the Global Conservation Force. And we're recording. Hi, welcome back to Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert Pike. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal. Today we have our, uh, <laughs> today we're going to restart because Robert doesn't know words yet. It's too early. Hi, welcome back to Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert Pike. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal. Today our special guest is joining us again. Is the, I'm going to restart one more time. Third time's a charm. <laughs> <laughs> How do you say it? Like our welcome, welcoming back our guest? Yeah. I guess I could yeah. Have, yeah. Okay. Um, hi, welcome back to Coffee and Conservation. My name is Robert Pike. I'm joined by my co-host, Mike Veal. Today's special guest is Blake Moynes, who is joining us yet again for our second part of our two-part cool podcast that we didn't have enough time to finish. Uh, we couldn't just leave the story as it is, so we asked him to come back on and share his, his stories yet again um, for the cool like back-to-back sequel of the Super Awesome Podcast. Um, now, unfortunately, before we jump into where we left off, in the previous episode regarding Blake in the hospital and the funny antics that happened, Mike was going to, um, you know, address the reality that is the conservation world into the, you know, anti-poaching scenarios that we so often face in, you know, Africa and Southeast Asia. So, um, Mike, I believe you wanted to, to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Thanks, Robert. Hey, so Blake, welcome back. I appreciate you taking the time again. I know, uh, you got a lot of things to do, so jump on the podcast and spend time with us. I appreciate it. Um, no, I mean, this, uh, this type of stuff is the, t- the stuff that I make the time for. It's what I, you know, like to talk about and have the passion for. So this setting aside time like this is not, uh, it's what I like to do. So I'm glad to be here again. Awesome, man. So, uh, well, everyone, I just, uh, I guess I, I've got to start with a little bit of a reality here. So a lot of times um, GCF is very much involved in hundreds of different reserves. Um, literally, we work and train and participate and collaborate with well over 100 anti-poaching units um, on the African continent alone. And that means that a lot of times we are aware of a lot of things that are happening that are just not fun news. Um, and sometimes it hits closer to home, home where we are uh, we have regional bases, so we have an East African hub and we have a Southern African hub. And uh, for the first near decade of our operations, we were in the Hoodsprite area, the Greater Kruger, where myself and Sergeant Christian and Sergeant Calvin uh, were on different task teams. And we worked with uh, almost all the reserves in that area, so we were well tuned into stuff. And now we've moved our Southern African hub into the Eastern Cape because we're working on biodiversity, securement, land purchases, and corridors. And uh, for lack of a better term, the Hoodsprite area is extremely well-funded and well-built up. There's a lot of strong players there that have been there for over a decade, like ourselves, and units have been caught up to speed. So you just kind of get to add little things. Well, the reason I share that background is a lot of times um, we are the first to know or among the first to know about some very serious happenings like rhino cases and out of respect for the reserves and for the rangers on the team and the police uh, that we collaborate with we choose not to share the poaching cases or details 
on any of our social media until uh, they have, uh, because essentially it can add a lot more pressure. Because not only is it really frustrating when you get uh, a breach by rhino poachers on your reserve, there's a lot of mental anguish that goes into like the staff that's there. They question what could they have done differently. Um, they're on their hands and knees already because they don't have everything they want in the realm of security because anti-poaching is expensive and you know you got to choose between boots for the guys and another guy or you know a couple more guys or a vehicle for patrol and fuel budgets and anyways the reason i share that is it there's a lot of factors that are well outside of the realm that the rangers can control and so when a when poachers do get in and they get out and they get away with a runner horn um it's 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 tormenting. It's extremely tormenting for not only the, that reserve, but everybody who is working with them and around. And unfortunately, um, last night, uh, U.S. time, uh, day time, mid-morning, South African time, um, I was alerted that yet again, a couple more rhinos went down. This time um, on a reserve we work very closely with, uh, I hinted at it on the last episode with Blake that uh, we were very, very, very busy over the last couple months um, in the Eastern Cape region because of these syndicates who had broken out of jail and they're very experienced and they started hitting a lot of reserves within our partnership realm. So we spent a lot of days of active patrol and uh, we lent ourselves uh, as a unit and in into different units with multiple different reserves at multiple different times and collaborate with police. And we kept those guys out of those reserves for that time. But the thing about anti-poaching that I think is really important to share is without Rangers present and without them patrolling, the gates wide open for these guys to get in and do whatever they want. And it goes undetected and unstopped. But even if you have rangers, you may not have enough rangers and enough kit and enough gear so they can still get past you, even with a good team. And so this specific reserve, um, we had put out basically a, a tab that said, hey, if you guys need extra patrols, you want extra coverage, or you want to do extra activities, we're here. It's logistically complicated because we have to borrow a van <clears throat> and a pickup truck for the volume of guys but we'll be there. We'll change our schedules. We'll be there. And we did that multiple times. Well, this reserve um, where this happened, and I'm not going to say the name out of respect for the guys until they announce it on their own social media channels and through their own ways, was one that called for help and specifically had said that they needed to do presence in a certain area and we did a huge presence, presence patrol and extended fan search and a bunch of other things uh, for a pretty good distance of this very visible road. And essentially what that does is if there's scouts for the syndicates, they see a lot of activity and they go, whoa, that place is hopping right now with a lot of patrols. We're going to hang. We're going to go somewhere else. And essentially that's what happened. The, the poaching pressure went a couple hours further away from us, which everything is a couple hours away anyways where we're at but it went a little bit further than that and um, they didn't hit directly in those areas now they came in these rhino poachers came in through a fence line cutting it during a lot of storming weather uh, again which makes it harder to detect and their footprints get washed away and 
there's other details that I'm not going to share about rhino locations, but essentially they chose an area that is harder to detect uh, issues for people and rhinos, and um, they were able to get away. So one of our corporals and one of our uh, senior instructors is uh, among the first on the scene doing a sweep with canines to uh, essentially look for any type of evidence. And I just feel like I need to share that because commonly when these things hit social media, it's like a, almost like a news press, like, Oh, who's the first to share? Like they're going to be the most accurate, but commonly, even from my own perspective, I see a lot of entities posting and I may have even been on that crime scene, but I'll never say that on social media and it's totally wrong and, or it doesn't tell the full story. And so there's some cases where locations are really at fault for the issue, but then they, they get on the internet and they cry about it and they, and then everybody's like, Oh, we're so sorry. And it's like, no, really we should be super pissed at that location because they're irresponsible or the opposite, you know, the media will paint out a reserve of like, how could this happen? And that team literally works so hard, is underfunded, understaffed. Their rangers are taking extra shifts, not getting paid, and they don't have enough equipment to patrol. And then the opposite happens. They get painted as irresponsible. So I like to stay out of the freight of that um, as much as possible until the, the, the real facts hit the, the press, and then we can post it with a clip that doesn't give away too much because – Everybody has to keep in mind, those syndicates are also watching our social media channels. Now, for the most time, for a very long time, I have had to deal with pretty serious death threats and it's finally subsided. So I've always been very careful with social media and where I'm at, all the other stuff, especially when I'm in the field. And the reason is, is a lot of these syndicate guys, they're very, very, very organized. So they know the names of the rangers. They know where they live. They know who the managers are. They know where their families live. And they use that information to strategically hit these areas. So when you post something on the internet, you could be giving them a lot more information through a lot more methods accidentally. So that's the other thing that's kind of can be irresponsible about posting some of these things is a single picture of a crime scene can give away a lot of information to the syndicates that they may be looking for. And that single picture can also give away a lot of personal data based on who's in it and who's liking it and who's commenting on it and who's sharing it. So just some food for thought for folks. Uh, you know, we've I've been in this for a long time. I've, I've been on a lot of crime scenes. I've personally caught a lot of poachers uh, in different countries. It's extremely difficult. Um, I know the first reaction to a lot of this is is rage. That's even mine. I get really frustrated. Uh, there's a lot of guilt, uh, especially since I, I had to come back to the U.S. I, I feel very guilty having to leave everybody behind, but we are restrained by funding. And so I have to come back to the U.S. to fundraise to keep the whole ship alive and afloat, essentially. But um, at the end of the day, you know, these are the driving force moments that keep happening that we have to push forward and uh, just have to share so that folks can, I guess, get a, a different perspective outside of the, the, you know, the sizzle reel type posts that are bound to hit from certain 
people and organizations uh, coming in the next couple hours. Um, but shit, sorry guys, I didn't mean to come in so heavy on that. Um, I, I let's uh, let's change the tune because um, I know that's it's hard information. You know, Blake has actually been on these reserves now, uh, where this has happened. So I know this is uh, haunting him as well. Um, Robert's been there, so. Mm-hmm. Let's go back to something happy here. Um, <laughs> there's a couple stories we actually forgot to tell in the mix of everything else. Um, we some pretty important ones. Uh, we with the recruits. So the recruits are really special in a lot of ways. You know, there is no ranger training facility in this area, and there's no like police academy. Um, There are a couple like places you can go to get training, but you have to have money. You have to get transportation. That means you have to get sponsored and there's all the other things. So we decided a long time ago to break that mold. Um, Sergeant Calvin and I uh, had come up with ideas of how to better impact the Ranger community. So we have um, six core areas of training for Rangers and we use advanced experienced instructors. And one of those areas is the boot camp. So the boot camp, we community select out of a very complex process. And these guys uh, come from just outside of the reserve. They're, they live next to and they go back and they work there. Okay, so this is important because um, essentially there's a lot of barriers still between the communities and just conservation in general and uh, everyday life. Um, very underserved uh, communities with a lot, not a lot of stuff going on. Um, so not a lot of opportunity. So we did a, uh, community day where we went and helped with the spay neuter vaccine and flea and tick treatment, uh, veterinary services day. It was sponsored by Medivet. Dr. William Folds had a bunch of vet students and he was one wing of the partnership. So they had the onsite people who were going to do the treatment and triage and uh, medications. And then, um, our partners at Curica Foundation had the location selected and the community uh, personnel from their community coaches program involved. And then there was another gal who's a local gal. Her name is uh, Verona uh, Feltman. And she is like a self-independent, strong, running, all-inclusive person who does this and has hit a couple other communities for Spain neuter programs and has had really good success. Well, I went to our partners at the Kirka Foundation because this overlapped our timeline and said, hey, let's get these, let's get our, our COSA guys involved in this because this is their own community. Four of them are actually from this community area. These are their neighbors and it allows them to be empowered and go in and be a part of a, a winning solution for their own community. Plus they get to learn new skills. And what was really important at the end of the day was they were the door knockers and translators. They were the ones that invited the community out. And it's a lot more friendly when somebody who's a familiar face does that who speaks your natural language versus like, you know, for example, me, I, I don't speak Kosa fluently and uh, I have a, you know, an American accent. And who is this guy, even though Curricula Foundation says we're going to do this and they know Curricula Foundation really well and they know of Global Conservation Force. Why, why would I go with him today? You know, so there are little barriers, but things ran really smooth. Um, Blake, what did you think of that day? I mean, you got to be hands-on. This was pre-foot injury. So you got to do quite a bit. You, you were with 
uh, Beans, if I remember correctly, in the door knocking. So, of course, he was cracking jokes with you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, just to, to start, I think people can maybe undervalue or don't realize the importance of what community um, is when it comes to conservation, the importance of the surrounding communities in these, you know, reserves. And so, um, you know, Krika obviously has a good understanding of the importance of that. And, and so the the collaboration of all the um, teams and people you just mentioned is, is so important. And so it was cool to see that come together on that day and seeing the recruits, um, you know, become a, a big part of that in their communities. I think that uh, it goes, it, it just certainly goes a long way, especially when it comes to, you know, little pieces of the puzzle like this, when it comes to the communities realizing the importance of um, wildlife and tourism. And um, this was a little, another piece of added value to their communities when it comes into play of, of, uh, bringing, I guess, help to their pets. And so people, I think, don't think of little things like this that do go a long way when these communities can either side with poaching and help, you know, poaching, or they could be helping these, these uh, reserves and the tourism that comes through the reserves that help the surrounding communities and involving them. So, you know, these little pieces of added value like this that go a long way in these communities can sometimes be under-recognized and undervalued. So it was cool to see a project this is like this come together and then the recruits actually play a big part in that and you could see how they had pride um in what they're doing and you know you could see that a lot of these community members that were coming to have their dogs and pets um uh service i don't know how you say a service but i have a health check done on them and bathe and all that kind of stuff you could see that a lot of the community members were recognizing the recruits as part of their community and it was cool to see that that interaction and the recruits kind of have that pride and and um, have that that stand for their communities in this type of way. Um, yeah, it was just it was just an interesting day to see uh, the collaborative effort from everybody involved, and you could see how the recruits felt very um, uplifted and proud of what they were doing there and how they're helping their communities. And I think probably the first way in this type of um, in this type of way where they felt like they were kind of not in charge, but definitely providing a service they probably haven't been able to do uh, ever before. And so it was cool to see that um, done through GCF and, and the Cricket Foundation and Reserve. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool to go back and look at um, <laughs> the photos. Literally all of the photos, all of our COSA guys, I mean, Mr. Mignani, of course, too, he's, he's you know, mm -hmm. sticks a smile in there all the time. But uh, all of our Costa guys uh, from that community and communities from close regions or regions nearby, they were glowing. Like they, they just felt so excited because they got to be the local heroes. They were yep. in their uniform. They got to go into their own community and offer something for free that was sponsored. They got to deliver that news. They got to help carry the dogs and leash the dogs, change their collars. And like Blake said, yeah, the, the, it's not that the community wants to side with poaching, but the way these syndicates manipulate situations is that devil's handshake. Hey, do you want fast cars? You want these cool you know, clothes? You want these sunglasses? You want this new phone? 
And then before you know it, you're stuck in that system. Yeah. And uh, it's a lot different than like, you know, people think that it's more of an entrapment. Um, but in the opposite, when conservation has the funding and the resources to be more involved, you get these really positive days. They are extremely complex. So I, I have to add to what Blake said. You can't just go run and do a community project. Like you can seriously fail in these categories and we watch people do it all the time. And I call it the electric toothbrush effect because someone from outside of the region is like, oh my God, these people, they need help. They do, they're not wrong. And they're like, God, they probably just need some basics and they'll get them something like, you know, let's say I, I like to use the electric toothbrush. Okay. The electric toothbrush is one because it's funny, like, because it's a like home comfort for people outside of that area. Like, oh, we can get them just hygiene products. They don't have a, an outlet in their wall to plug it in. They don't have running water. And because that thing's worth money, they're going to sell it. And then they're going to get food instead. And what did you do in that process? You didn't help them and you didn't change anything. And it's essentially their status quo. So that's the handout versus the hand up. And the hand up is the vocational training, the integration, the shared responsibility, the shared ownership. Um, so, you know, these are things when you're thinking about community-based conservation. If it's cheap and short and sexy, it probably has zero impact. And so if it's complex and there's more than one role player in there or there's a long game, it doesn't have to have more than one role player too. If there's a long game, like it started with this coming to this and goes this and we're coming back to this and it's a cyclical thing. That's when you see the impacts. Uh, so it's important because we had like 10 layers in that thing, which was more of a magical alignment on top of our plans because of how good it worked for the guys. So it was pretty cool. Um, they're glowing. I th I'd have to look up the stats, but I think it was well over 50 dogs and a couple cats that got um, mm -hmm. free treatments, vaccines, uh, tick and flea, heartworm medication. Um, let's see, 51 dogs and cats. Um, that's quite a few. Because um, remember, participation from the community is the hardest thing. That is the hardest part. It's not actually providing the service it's getting the, the participation and what's awesome absolutely awesome is we the community is asking us all to have another one of those that doesn't always happen mm -hmm. so um now we're just we're looking it's a it costs about two thousand dollars to set up the whole thing um for the flea tick veterinary services veterinary time all that stuff the, the vets do volunteer their time too but like the quantity of things that get used and all that stuff yeah and then um fuel <laughs> fuel is actually kind of the bigger thing for all this um because i think last time we had four vehicles there two of which were driving in and out of the community but a lot of people had to drive for two hours uh to get there so it's it's a whole calculated process and um but super positive day uh robert did you get to see any of those photos or any of those videos yeah i saw some of the photos and i thought they looked really rad um, I, I, like, I just think like, um, touching back on the community today, I remember when I first started, um, you know, being into like conservation and being just, just tippy toeing into it. You know, I remember you were like, oh, well, you know, with the three big pillars and one of the biggest pillars is like education and community. 
And at first I was like, huh? Like it didn't really make sense. And then the more you look at it, you're like, oh my God, this is like, I, it is such a huge role. And I think the fact that you guys took the, the recruits out there and engaged in the community is like the coolest experience, not only for, you know, for them, but for like, it, you know, it builds trust for years and generations to come. And I think that's one of the coolest things is you guys are laying that foundation for like a successful relationship, um, you know, for, for future generations that help preserve, you know, the wildlife. Um, I, I get, I get really excited. I, I get like such a proud mom moment whenever I see you like the GCF post stuff like that on the Instagram, like, ah, oh, look at us go. It's, it's, I love yeah. it. I know. I, I get really excited too. Cause like, it's, that, I can't understate like, you know, again, it, it, I posted just like yesterday uh, and the day prior for World Wildlife Day and the African proverb, if you if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> it's very true. Like if you are essentially in, in a lot of a lot of places will call you rogue, um, mm-hmm. if you're just acting for your own service. So you know, if you're posting your face in on the social media all the time of an organization, are you really, are you really actually there for conservation? Or are you there for yourself to show that you're doing something right? Sure. Uh, at the same time, you can do whatever you want with funding and jump all over the place. But is there really an impact? And is there really a calculation? Also, what has happened there before? Right? Like what has been going on before you showed up? And are you just literally piggybacking and copying other groups and essentially just copycatting right so that's the go alone factor the go together factor is when you're doing these long complex things that was straight up dr fold's group cricket foundation cricket coaches our crew plus the vehicles plus verona veltman um and the community that's a lot of stakeholders to line up for a day that where South Africa gives you challenges with literally just going to the grocery store. So like, <laughs> you know, literally like everything, literally everything you're like, Oh, I want to send an email. Just kidding. The power is going to be out for yeah. eight hours now. And Oh, the Wi-Fi tower just got struck by a bird and uh, that part's only Johannesburg. So it's five days away. Mm-hmm. And Oh yeah. At the same time, Oh, why is the house on fire? Yeah, you know, like, and we have no water. Yeah, oh, Oh man, God, no water. That was every guys, three days. I was going to ask if you guys had to deal with that again. Yeah, yeah. At the uh, so at the the where we do the training camp base, uh, the, <laughs> the water is always a struggle because the power is what the, there's a power line that takes a pump from a well, and since the power goes out so frequently now because of load shedding in South Africa, the well and reservoir doesn't fill, and the the actual, we found out while we were there, the reservoir is leaking. So <laughs> it's just it's like, like, and they have to import the water too. They don't even get the yeah. water there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm straight up. I, there were about five or six days that I didn't take a shower so that other GCF team members could, and the recruits yep. could, because yep. I was just like, one more shower was going to break the system. Um, oh, yeah. so yeah. Oh man. Like, did you experience the shot, the salty shower? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we the water issues were were one thing of many. It felt yeah. like <laughs> it's just so much, dude. It, yeah. is, it is a little bit of a surprise, and you're like, oh, I'm saltier coming out of the shower than when I came in. Yeah, and and, and when we did have water, like 
I, I took a cold, cold, like there was no hot coming out yeah. of, uh, so, you know, it was just cold showers and yeah. So, I mean, luck, the, the feeling of coming home after a, a long day, especially in the elements and environment we were in after multiple days sometimes and wanting to take one. <laughs> and when you do it, like it's trickling out and it's cold. It's just like, you know, that luxury of like feeling good after shower was never really a good feeling. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. Uh, so Blake, I found the video. So I, I just so everybody knows, I owe Blake a bunch of footage. And uh, I do, when I'm home in California, I do have access to internet now, which if you've listened to the podcast, <laughs> my previous place, I could barely get any internet signal. Um, but it just so happens that where I live, the signal isn't strong enough to really send media files. It's strong enough to like run the podcast and a bunch of other things. But uh, so I, I owe Blake about 200 gigs of photos and videos so that he can access some and everything. And, and Blake, I'm going to send you one right now through Lee Transfer. I just tried right. to send it through WhatsApp and it said it's too big. So I'm going to send you a file. But it's, uh, it's dialogue between you and Beans. And uh, <laughs> it's the one where you're talking about the bully beef, uh, the tin, the tin meat. And... <laughs> It's pretty funny. It's it's a good one. Like I, I was chuckling at it because he's trying to explain to you that you eat it and you're like, I don't trust it. And you're like, nope. Uh, but I bring this up because uh, we also missed talking about how uh, one of the call outs we did between many things. And I'm sure I'm sure, too, at these point in times, you didn't trust me. I'm like, is this real? Is this fake? Is are we really going to do this? Or are we doing something else? But uh, one of the times, again, going back to we were very busy using the recruits on patrol on various activities. We had gone to a call out for another reserve. Um, there was intel suggesting the rhino poachers were going to try to breach the reserve that night. So uh, Sergeant Toomey and myself split the teams and we were collaborating with the other anti-poaching unit on site. We added a volume of 13 players into it. So we put Corporal Dillon over watch with Blake's crew and on what's called an OP, so an observation post. Um, and the reason is, is we were covering one side, which could have been the entrance or exit. And then myself and Sergeant Toomey took a group of recruits who volunteered to come with us on the other side. And just to give perspective, uh, again, rhino poachers are fit, they're calculated, they're sophisticated, um, unless they're brand new. So these guys aren't just like wandering around like with a, you know, a bunch of machine guns and, oh, there's a rhino and they mow it down. No, they work on months of intel and they try to get inside information, they get inside players, they do all that shit and then they hit. So intel's coming through from the captain of police for the entire province. He's called me directly and said, we would like you to be in this location to help this team. And I collaborate with the leading sergeants on that team and the management and say, okay, where do you want us and how do you want us to fit into this? And they give us their ops radios. And anyways, we get into patrol. And this is where we end up building a bush boma um, outside of the reserve where a lot of poachers cross through. And this is where the, the scene where Blake and beans are sharing a can of bully beef and the magic is uh is is going down right there and this is the 
this is the afternoon prior to the night of activities. So everybody's building their camps and setting up their food and we're letting folks rest. And uh, Sergeant Toomey is doing a reconnaissance sweep around us to make sure that there's literally no poachers sleeping by us because that can happen Um, and getting a a lay of the terrain and kind of mapping it so that if something happens after dark, we can safely appropriate, like kind of use our skills and our team in the right ways. Um, So, so Blake, let's go back to that moment. Um, We get, we get to that reserve and then we transfer from vehicle to location with that reserve and team. And then we give you guys the, uh, first orders to build a bush camp and you guys start building a bush camp. Yeah. I mean, I think for the most part, everyone was never, it's, it's hard to, it was almost impossible to feel prepared for what was kind of next. I mean, we always felt prepared in terms of like gear and what we um, had and how to utilize those things. But in terms of the situations we were going to get into it, 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 we always, felt like you weren't prepared and it was more of like a, a reactionary type of thing, um, which made it always, made you kind of feel on edge as you should be. Um, and so it was cool to see how, uh, as things, you know, unfold throughout the night and the seriousness around the tone as, you know, darkness was starting to come on as to how, you know, beginning of the day was, you know, laid out as to what we were going to be doing and the purpose and, um it was kind of lighthearted until things started to get in. Okay. You know, it's, you know, it's seven 30 now everyone's rested and eaten and eaten. And this is how we're going to divide the teams. This is the purpose. This is, this is why we're doing this is where we're serious. This is no joke. And it was very cool to see the uh, intensity pick up as the darkness started to kind of come on and you, the radio start calls started coming in about, okay, this is what we're going to do. This team's going to go here, you know, then the seriousness around the observation posts and the, the the switching from teams and everyone was completely dead silent and there you just felt the seriousness around what these what operations like this um feel like and how they should be um and how they should be operated and so it was a really cool uh i think that was our probably our first that was our first kind of um deployment i guess to get a real taste of what uh an op um operation kind of feels like and everyone took it really serious which was really cool there was not any messing around after you know you guys started to take off and the op started happening um and it was cool to see everyone kind of fall into a very serious tone uh after what was um laid on us as a very serious uh night ahead so it was really really cool to to feel a part of something um real and helping uh, a local reserve like that so um, I don't know. I mean, you know, there's an intensity to it and there's kind of like an adrenaline rush type when you're sitting out in the OP in the pitch dark and I'm sitting beside, uh, I can't pronounce his name, so I'm going to call him number eight. But um, the seriousness of like, you know, when you can't whis- even whisper to each other because you have to be so silent out of that OP down at the railroad. And so, you know, you're using a stick to like, you can't even see him, but you're re- you're reaching over and poking and he's doing the same to me to get my attention about something because you can't speak and like the seriousness around that and how silent you have to be and how your radio is turned all the way down so that when you get, you know, your notification about like, hey, you know, if something happened, like it's very cool to be in that because you hear about it and you see things on TV about how operations of like army and things like that, but to be in it and for a meaningful purpose like that and you're out there 
protecting wildlife and this is the extremes you have to go to do that was just a very eye-opening um feeling and it's really hard to explain the intensity and the feeling in that moment so i'm glad that i was able to go through a real deployment like that to understand what it takes and how serious it is and how things can happen like that and how you have to be so prepared for it so um, that was a really cool first um deployment and operation because it really um hit home what 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 wildlife rangers go through on a regular basis to do the job right and um yeah it was just very very interesting that's that's cool perspectives so i'll add some layers of intensity here so uh even at that time i had a full i had a full docket of information what was going on but i couldn't share it with the recruits um out of operational security so that's kind of the burden that like a sergeant's going to have running these different calculations because not i do not suspect any of our recruits at all they're all vetted and great and have solid hearts but in the first couple of weeks you're still filling everybody out so if you for example slipped information and somehow that information got out even if it honestly got out on accident like oh they saw a guy they recognized as we were driving into the reserve oh what are you doing here oh we're going to be chasing rhino poachers tonight like you can't say that because that gate guard might be the one who's on the payroll you know you don't know so that was one of the layers of intensities i had come through with these guys and talked about basically operational security and information and that I, I'm going to only tell them what I can tell them at a certain time. I left a bunch of already what I've talked about out completely. And then <laughs> what I did tell them though, was after we were getting ready to start our OPs, I explained why Sergeant Toomey did a reconnaissance around us. And I explained what me and the other team were going to do. And basically was like, okay, guys, we have a, a 20 kilometer hike tonight and it starts at 10 PM. And so, you know, people always ask like, why do Rangers have to be so fit? And the reason is that it, and that's before you even make contact with these guys, like, you know, you, you haven't made contact with the poachers yet and you may have gone. So that's 20 kilometers is 12.4 miles. That's after we've been up all day already. And we were up, all day the day prior and so short on sleep short on food moving around like like said a reaction we're getting there build a camp which is labor it's labor intensive and then split the teams and now everybody's got to stay up all night again so now here's the funny thing again adding more layers of pressure it's a friday night poachers do like to hit on friday nights on certain time frames for dog poaching or snare poaching and not like killing dogs, like using dogs to kill wildlife. So where our main camp was, was in the road between, or not like an actual road, it's in the, the pathway that the uh, very serious snare and meat poachers like to come through. And it's a Friday night and that's usually when they like to go big if they're gonna come out because they might go drinking, might go you know, poaching, and we're right in their pathway on purpose. So the team that's with Corporal Dylan and where Blake's at is like, hey, be on the lookout because these guys are pretty hardcore. Just because they don't have the word rhino poacher in their title doesn't mean they're not as dangerous. They're equally as dangerous because you're going to interrupt their profit. These guys are going for a bigger detail. Now, on the other side, I've told the other team, we are literally trying to bump rhino poachers tonight 
three very serious syndicate guys. And whether we bump them, they hear us, or they see our footprints, our whole goal is to delay them and to deter them. And so the guys split up into teams, and that's an intensity, right? So the guys that are at one side have to stay awake all night on shift, and the guys with me and Sergeant Toomey have to stay up all night and hike with Kit for 20 kilometers from one section back to where our camp is so we can sweep this entire side of the reserve and the fence line and vulnerable areas. And we don't have night vision. We don't have spec ops gear. I mean, I have thermal and uh, we have red lights and stuff, but there's no funding for that in conservation. And, and I'm not even asking for that because uh, one set of thermal imaging or night vision is like four months to six months to maybe even a year of a ranger's salary. So it's better to have rangers on the ground in some aspects well in advance before you add those things. So, you know, we're, we're splitting the hairs versus cherry picking at this point. Um, but that said, we also, uh, Sergeant Toomey and I have spent years working in the bush at night and we, we know how it goes. And I can tell you it's less than desirable to not have, you know, handheld thermal and, or even something that you could wear. <laughs> but we are used to that. And there's a lot of things we have to mitigate for risk. Um, so, yeah, that's what's going on in this pressure cooker. Um, it's, it's definitely not just like, a hey, we're going to go sit out here tonight and watch a fence line or listen for footsteps. And that's you nice. guys did actually pick up stuff. You, you guys at your picket reported details and you guys did have um you had notes from your op yeah i think so it was i th i think it was corporal dylan that was down there when uh he reported a noise on the on that railroad type path um which is crazy because like yeah you know i don't know how i, I would have reacted when i was you're because you're right you're right there, like right where the OP was set down there, like you're right there. So it would have been a adrenaline feeling hearing something come right by you. And, and cause I remember sitting there with not hearing anything during my OP session down there, but feel it constantly just feel like waiting and you're constantly waiting for that. So when it would come, I can only imagine how they would have felt in that situation. So um, it makes it feel very, very real. And that by off by like an hour or two, you could have been the one right down there, right next to potential poacher that was, yep. you know, threatening. So it's very uh, uh, intense. So when he came back and I remember, I remember when, you know, he came down. So he was surprisingly enough, actually, now that you say that he's the one that came and took me off the OP. So it was only, you know, within an hour, an hour and a half or two uh, difference between me being down there and being feeling that close and hearing that noise. I remember when he came down, just like the, the whispering and the severity of it. And it was so intense. Everyone was so intense in their communications. And it just was a very, uh, it was just a moment, my first moment of feeling like really a part of, um, APU and a ranger and that feeling of it, that adrenaline feeling of how a mix between like danger and not knowing what was next. And it's like, you know, the fact that a lot of these guys are going to have that coming out of this program and being deployed to the reserves and having that on a constant basis. Um, it's a really, it's a really crazy world to think to be living on, on the daily and how I, just the respect that needs to go into um, what Rangers deserve because they're always right in the thick of it and constantly, you know, 
uh, an hour or a turn away from, you know, being face to face with a, a, a poacher, which is, you know, never the place you really want to be, but it's just a fundamental of an, an obvious of what's going to happen when you're a, rock, a ranger and working every day and every night. Yep. Nailed it, man. Robert, I heard a couple questions in there. I, I think oh, you were just going to Yeah, I was just going to reiterate that, like, you know, when you guys do these, like, OPs and just, like, for anybody, like, thinking, like, you're in the middle of, like, the bush and it is dark, dark. Like, there's no light pollution. It is, like, very, very real. And then, like, especially as, like, as, you know, for somebody like me as an outsider, like, in the bush, it's typical, like, you hear a twig snap, you're like, oh, what's that? You know, like, you, yeah. you're, you, you start, like, yeah, uh, it gets very intense. It's not like a like a kumbaya kind of thing. It is dark. You can't see anything. Like and like like says you're like on noise discipline. You're on light discipline, and it's a it's a pretty real experience. So that actually cracks a pretty funny story. I get all excited when I when you guys tell stories because like ah, it's like it's super cool. Yeah. You feel it. I mean, Blake, did you feel in that OP, it's so quiet and the bush is actually still kind of humming and buzzing and you're listening to all that, but it gets so quiet that you can, when you're feeling the stress, you can, you can hear your heartbeat in your ears mm-hmm. and you can feel that. Yeah. And you know, it, it's so dark, but you can like kind of make out like decent silhouettes of like trees and things, but even then you really can't. So you're trying to get your eyes to adjust and in your eyes adjusting with like little cracks and little, you know, mm-hmm. you're like something there. Like you're constantly, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's not easy to fall asleep because oh, you're yeah. so, <laughs> so, you're so alert of like, what was that? Was that something like what? Like it's and that feeling is, uh, yeah, it's wild. It's, it's hard to explain that feeling unless you're out there doing that. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, there's constant alarms going off in your head because you're, you're seeing, potentially hearing, and it's like alarm, alarm, alarm. So you're never able to like settle. It's yeah. like, yeah. Because it's not like just poachers. It's like poachers and then like, you know, yeah. big five or it could be, you know, mm-hmm. something like totally relevant. Like it's like D all of the above when you're when you're out there. Yeah. You're, you know, you're sitting down in the dirt, in the thick, uh, the thick of all the shrubs, all like the, the logs, the rock on stuff. And it's like, you know, it could be anything, right? Mm-hmm. A scorpion could be right sitting right in my pocket. And I wouldn't even know it. Like you're really like any little thing you're thinking of the potential from, you know, big game to like a snake to anything. You're, you're sitting right down in the dirt with all stuff. So there's so many elements that could, you know, be a, of, of a threat. And um, you're taking all those into account while you're sitting there when you have nothing else to think about other than like, poachers scorpions snakes what is this what is mm-hmm. that like it's just like you're constantly and you're allowing all of those senses to like you're using all of them but all of them are playing kind of tricks on you at the same time but at the same time they're also not tricks because it could be exactly what you think it is so um yeah it's an interesting mind game while you're out there sitting completely silently and uh yeah it's, it's just it's just different <laughs> so i have a couple of funny stories that that sparked my memory so years ago uh when <clears throat> calvin and i were part of that that uh, nonprofit task team that was multifunctional working with the police and the um, higher divisions of the police force that were special investigations and kind of more like SWAT team. Uh, there was a lot of times where we get deployed and I, I will highly not recommend this, but it was a, sh- a shortage of labor essentially and a shortage of skill. But occasionally, because some of us had a lot of training and a lot of time in the bush, we would split each other out into solo and at like where we're in an OP, but we're by ourselves 
and the next OP is actually out of earshot and you're not going to walk that distance. And one of these times, it was kind of funny, uh, coming in to patrol, uh, and keep in mind, like for me, I, I pretty much never went off. It just would take time in between duties to maybe go here or there for a weekend or <laughs> go use a nice bed and shower for a weekend. But uh, during this is during the 2014, 15, 16 timeline, which was the peak of activity in the heart of the rhino quote war and i don't like to use rhino war i'll come back to that um but i it's a full moon intel suggests the guys are coming in that night they've come in before in this area so i'm in a spot where they like to cross and we pay attention to the past events and the projected intel and everything else that falls into play that gives us kind of an operational plan so I get dropped off. It's 11.30 p.m. at night. We've been up all day. We didn't sleep the night prior. And I get dropped off. This is a big five reserve. Um, I'm, I can share the name of the reserve. It's Thornybush. Uh, I was working in Thornybush at this time with the section. And there's multiple sergeants on this reserve. Now, because of the operation and the situation, only our task team members and the management at the highest level knew we were in there because it we were making sure that just in case we could vet other rangers on that reserve who were also part of our extended team making sure they weren't part of anything so here's like three layers of scary if you bump into your own team member and he's not part of it one you got to explain yourself if you actually get caught by him right what the hell are you doing here if he's not part of it two if he's part of it that's more scary because if he actually finds you and he's part of it, and let's say he's actually helping the poachers, he might just shoot you there, right? Because now you're a witness. And then three, you're just out there with the wildlife. And so this specific night was kind of funny because I was having a really, really hard time staying awake. So I actually took my shirt off so I could be cold to sit there and kind of shiver and then draped it over myself. But, and I was like, cause it was a, it was a warm night, but I was trying to cool myself off. And that was the only thing I could think of. And then I heard the classic, like slow predator walk, like, yeah, very yeah. slow. I'm like, Oh shit. And there are lions there and leopard and cheetah, <laughs> not to mention hippo, black rhino, elephants, everything else. So I straight up bolt up the tree and I do my OP from like mid tree, like 20 feet up in that thing. And I'm looking down and I'm watching a riverbed where there's a bridge crossing and a road crossing crossing. And I'm within earshot of a, what's called a pan or a, a, a small water, like a small pond, not deep and not big. And I stay up in that tree until I get extracted. And I like, I don't get extracted until like 4am before first light. I see the, I can hear the car coming slowly. The headlights are off, cab lights are pulled. It's completely blocked out. And then the, the signal for me to get into the vehicle is like a quick turn on the radio, turn off the radio so you can hear it. And that's mm. it. And so I get out of the tree and go into the vehicle. I'm like, dude, I don't know what's with me tonight, but it's been hanging out around me all night. I don't know what it was. Uh, and I was like, it had me up that tree. I was treed all night because I wasn't going to play any games. No. So the next day, I was like, I have to go back there. We have to go back there just to sweep. It was a warthog. Oh, I, really? It was a warthog that time. Oh, and man. then it was really funny because uh, 
another time in that same exact spot, a leopard killed an impala within like a hundred yards of me at night. Like I couldn't see it, but I could hear everything. And I was like, oh, dang it. Even if I go up a tree, this leopard is going to get me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, no way. Uh, but yeah, so that was, that was one thing that came into mind uh, with that. And then um, the sleeping. Uh, the recruits could not stop laughing at me because when we did the long 20-kilometer section, we did three stops so we could do quiet OPs. No sound, listen, everything. And Sergeant Toomey and I alternated who slept. So the first one, like he's up for a little bit and I sleep and then I up and he goes to sleep and da-da-da-da, right? So we swap so we can do sectional OPs as we we're coming down this big trail that we're doing but all the recruits couldn't get over the fact that as soon as it was my turn to sleep i literally would put my head down and go out done like unconscious and then sergeant toomey would tap my boot like very lightly like doo, doo, doo. and then i'd be like up and standing again and like they all started to laugh because this is that that on off switch you learn when you're doing all these different things but i i can't do that like in my home life i can't like if I'm out of the bush, I can't on off switch like that. But in an operational setting, silent sleeping, no snoring, and just boom, off, on, go. And they, none of them were doing that. So they kept bringing it up to me like, how do you train yourself to do that? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't, I honestly don't know. You just, you learn how to do it. I, I don't know how to explain how I got myself there. Um, but yeah, it, it was pretty funny. Yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, it's so hard to 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 fall asleep on command. But if you can do that out there, that is definitely a skill that's uh, required or definitely helpful. Because anytime you can get any fifteen minutes and a quality sleep when you need it, and the only time frame that you're allowed to have it is definitely key when sleep is hard to come by out there. Did you get that video? Did it come through? I was gonna see because. We should play the audio of that thing. Let me see it. Uh, let me see it here. So let's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to play it real quick on my side just to see if the audio comes through. Sure. Let's see. Do you guys hear that when it comes through? Mm, no. Know. Okay. Right. So let me try. I'm gonna try this. Okay. I'm gonna unplug my headset real quick to see if it plays. There you go. There you go. Can you guys, you can hear that? Yeah. No. Okay. <laughs> I don't want it. <laughs> oh, no, man. <laughs> Why are you <laughs> So the visual here is uh, one of the rangers is passing like a tin and he's opening the tin. You never tin. know. You might really enjoy it. Like, looks like cat food. Yeah. <laughs> looks like cat food. Uh, yeah, so that was one section of that video. Uh, I, I just get a trip out of it every single time. I think maybe Blake, that's something you share in your, uh, your timeline. I'll share it in my timeline too. And, uh, there's, there's a longer one cause I asked you for a Yelp review of Bully Beef. And oh yeah, 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 yeah. I remember that moment. Oh, it was pretty funny. Yeah. That, that, you know, that Bully Beef, uh, bleh, like. 
I, it's crazy you know, how they're like it. You know, it truly is like a delicacy to some of those guys. And I was tr- finding anything I could to trade that off with a can of beans. I will take beans over that stuff any day. So you're like, no, no go. I'll eat a raw onion before I eat that ever again. Really? So I know, um, like I, I know you did the APU course while you were there. Were you able to like explore any parts of you know the surrounding area around it? Because where you were was is really really pretty. Were you able to like do some cool like sightseeing or like? Uh-huh. So I had plans to after the course jump around and oh, cool. and partner with a couple of different organizations and do some cool things. But then when the foot mm. issue happened and that settled in, it ruined. Uh, my stay and so i had to go home maybe about a month earlier than i had anticipated oh, wow. uh unfortunately no but you know it just sets up uh, a great reason to go back and and finish what i had you know planned to do in the first place so cool. a reunion tour yeah a reunion tour yeah yeah that's true we and who knows even depending on the timeline that you come back we have some really really big cool crazy things shaken into play that uh we've been planning and setting up for a long time but like uh like the, the introduction of the 12 black rhinos with gcf right. and uh gcf becoming a, a custodian of black rhinos and the whole thing and the opening of more corridors we're waiting for the cheetahs to come in there's they keep they're supposed to show up on the 15th of january originally and of course right. uh in africa time that's it's we're now going to be three months later practically uh and so Natasha's in the field waiting for the cheetahs to arrive at the uh, new Boma that we just built for the uh, reintroduction of hand-raised cheetahs. I don't know the full story of the cheetahs yet. I've been told a couple stories, but basically they were like rewilded. And then we we're going to rewild them on Karika in that area where we were doing tracking exercises where uh, Chris was at. So oh, they actually get a cheetah. Uh, more. We're going to do a coalition of uh, cheetahs so i think the plan is two or three males depending on how they are they form on their side where they're at now so that's kind of the, the that's the current delay is making sure that they're a good bonded coalition uh Very cool. so yeah no there's a lot of cool stuff i mean shoot even just between the reserves that you went uh you got to see what the landscape change is just within 45 minutes and uh, I think the craziest thing is just to, to remind everybody, you know, the entirety of the Eastern Cape was settled a long time ago and was, has been agricultural lands for technically 400 to 200 years, depending on the section. So wildlife is reintroduced in that area within the last 30 years, more heavily within the last 20 years. So you're seeing the true rewilding of these habitats with biodiversity coming back and it's interesting because you can be driving on the road and be looking into a reserve and then there's farmland and then there's cattle grazing and kind of like driving to yosemite or yellowstone in between you know same kind of thing and you can see the difference of the health of the environment in a on off switch uh, yeah in spots mm-hmm. so all righty the long-awaited story We've, we've, uh, we've danced around it. Yeah. I mean, she's, I, I feel like I've tried to tell the story to a couple of friends here and I realize how long it can get. So I'll try to do it in the, the shortest detailed version that I can. But, um, essentially, uh, you know, after the, the hospital visit, you know, realistically, 
I went through so much pain there that I was like, okay. And he gave me a whole whack of uh, biotic antibiotics, which is my second round of antibiotics. I'm thinking, okay, well, he put me through that much pain. He gave me all these antibiotics. Like, this has got to be it. Like, you know, I, I went through it now. It's the, the time for the antibiotics to settle in and do its thing. And what do you know, after another two days, you know, uh, three days, probably at that point, I was like, this wasn't getting better as much as I wanted to. And I was, you know, every day having to, as it was, you know, peaking through my skin and the, the pus and the infection was, you know, starting to express itself. Um, and me every day having to, you know, work at it to get you know, all the infection out. And I realized after three days that this stuff was, it was like a never ending volcano of infection constantly coming out of my foot. I realized, okay, there's got it again, like there's no, the infection should start to be settling, not like peaking and getting worse. And this, you know, why is the, the pus like never ending? Why is this continuously funneling out of my foot? So um, I think we had planned on, it, this was like a Saturday or something, but on the Tuesday was when we had anticipated going back just to, you know, revisit uh, what was happening with my foot. And remember I showed you, I think it was on the Sunday morning. I'm like, Hey, like, this is what it looks like now. And you're like, yeah, it's probably best we get in tomorrow just to get, to take a look at it. And so, yeah, um, I remember the, the nights were very difficult to sleep. It was just, my foot was its own heartbeat in a, in a, in a way, just like the throbbing of the pain and um, the pain meds that I was given just didn't really feel like it was doing anything. Um, and it was super frustrating at that time because it just, you know, I've been, I've been through it like so much through, I think just the course alone and like the, the struggles mentally and physically of like what the course brings you. And then when this foot thing was laid on top of it, it was just like, like what next type thing. And, you know, that, going from doctor to doctor and like thinking it was going to get better to only like, you know, be hit with something else or like, it's not getting better. It's getting worse. was like, it's just a constant like mental battle is more than almost physical in a way, just because like I came here to do this now I'm being set back and the foot's not getting any better. And it's like, it was a lot. So finally we went on Monday to uh, a local private clinic, um, kind of on a whim with no appointment. And, uh, so I was waiting there in the doctor's office for a while. When I finally got back to see the doctor, it was a pretty immediate uh, scary response from him when he took a look at my foot. And it was like, he just looked at me. He's like, yeah, this is a good mate. He's like, we got to do something right now. And I'm like, like whoa, 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 like, you know, I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting maybe like a new round of antibiotics. Like what, what does this mean? Cause I've already been through a hell of pain. I, I'm not, <laughs> what do we got to do? And he's like, listen, I, I, I got to tell you, he's like, I had something similar to this in my teens and uh, it was in the heel of my foot. And we had to have multiple people come in here and pin me down just because it's the bottom of your foot. And it's, you know, there's a lot of nerve endings down there. And this and that. He's like, I, I just, you know, because and I think the reason he was so upfront with me in the beginning was that he's going to have to have someone come down and pin my legs down. And when it's on the bottom of your foot like that, and you've already got a crazy infection on the bottom of your foot with the nerve endings and how sensitive your people's feet are, and especially me, I can't have anyone touch my feet just even like in general and they're good, yeah. let alone someone using a scalpel and digging out abscess and stuff like that when you can't put me under or help with anything like that, just a local anesthetic. He was very, very honest. And he's like, you have to turn over like just and just suck it up. But I, I there's no other way around this. And I'm just like, like, I'm not ready. Like, I can't, I can't, like I've already been through enough. And so 
they had a nurse come in, a second nurse come in. And I remember turning onto my stomach and I'm like, kind of like peeking around. Like I can see like they're whispering and stuff. And I'm like, what is going on? Like I, when they're whispering, obviously it's not good. They don't want me to hear what's going on. And so I can see them roll over the trolley of all the, the, utensils they're going to use from like the scrapers and the scalpels and i'm just like sweating buckets and i'm like i've already been through enough pain like what are you going to do and yeah within five minutes he didn't even let me really think about anything he had the giant syringe with local anesthetic and he's i remember i just like screaming when he was jabbing the bottom of my foot and that infection with that local anesthetic which already hurts enough as is in a a non-infected area in the bottom of your foot i remember just wanting to yank my foot back in the pain of of him jab, jabbing it and i remember him like it's okay but we'll get through it we'll get through it. i remember him tapping my cap all the time as i was like gripping the table almost like spitting through my oh, wow. through my mouth just to how painful and swearing though the whole place could hear me as i could feel them just scalpeling and digging and then realizing how deep it was and every time i would scream he would realize it wasn't frozen there so it would he would try to freeze inside my wound in that spot as he would cut deeper and scrape. I was, it was just an absolute nightmare of pain. And by the end of it, my leg was shaking again. And he's wrapping it up. And I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, fuck me, man. Like that was brutal. Like I can't, it was like 15 minutes of him just like digging at the bottom of my foot. And then I said, listen, how long is this going to take? I got, a, I got a month here. And I got to like do some other stuff after this course. And, I, and he's like, he's like, dude, this is serious. He's like, this is a serious thing. It's going to be at least a month of healing. And I just was like, just so broken at that point. So I was like, I just, I came out here to do this thing and fully participate. Now all my time is, is cut short, even for all the cool projects I had after this. Like it was just such a defeating moment and just like, you know, realizing, well, nothing's worked up at this point. Like, is this going to be another, like, you know, or I think it's fixed and it's not like, it was just such a, uh, demoralizing moment when I remember walking out into that lobby and people were like, are you okay? Because they could hear me screaming back there as they're digging up my foot. And, oh man, it just, you know, that was the first day of, you know, another five weeks to come of the healing process, which also, you know, took time because he needed to see me then, you know, the, the, they wanted to make sure the infection was out of my foot, which it didn't, it wasn't out for the next, like, I think seven or eight days or so until I got new antibiotics that helped with the deep tissue infection. So it was just such a nightmare of back-to-back situations that Finally, now is, you know, coming around, I did a bone scan that they're worried about a bone infection. This is five weeks out now. I did bone scan a few days ago and um, I'm waiting on the results this week because the bone scan based on what I saw does look like there's stuff going on in my foot. So I'm hoping to God that it's, you know, reading something else or or whatnot, but it's been just such a disaster uh, from that moment. And, you know, just a great realization of like what a blister can, can, turn into if it's not taken care of properly and um you know when you're in boots and stuff all day like this you know the realization like the smallest can cut can turn into something from cellulitis and you know a lot of these infections can turn into like amputation or cutting off toes or whatever it is and so it's just a realization of really taking care of any small uh abrasion or cut especially in those environments because it can fester and multiply quick with the bacteria and so um you know just i think a couple bad events um in a row with some bad luck and things along the way that uh really just took me off my game and um yeah i'll never make that mistake again with just uh 
just jumping on you just you just the thing is like you just never know you you've never had anything like this before so it's hard to to gauge right it's mm-hmm. it's uh it was just a crazy situation that really got out of control um in a way that we tried to control the best we could based on what we knew so it was such a weird weird uh sequence of events but you know what i still try to take away all the positives and so we're gonna leave it with things are good now it was just a learning learning curve an experience that I needed to, for some reason, go through. Man, I tell you, it was a, <clears throat> it was a challenge. I mean, the, I, if you want, if we want, we can share some of the craziness of the first night, which was like the rodeo, but it, it, it's right there. It seemed like we had after the first, well, actually from the Wednesday where you showed us a blister that was dry and cut back and clean to Friday was the strangest transformation for all of us, I think, because it was like, oh, it's just a blister. It's probably sore. It literally doesn't look anything more than a blister. Then by Friday, it's a mini volcano under your foot, and you're just like, whoa. And then we're all asking you, like, did you did something puncture your boot? Did something sting you? Did, like, do you remember anything? And we're, like, asking you all these questions because we're like, what, how did it go from benign blister to this weird deep uh, pea-sized, or maybe I think it was more of even maybe closer to a grape size at that point, um, of swelling. And it was getting uh, red margins as it like, because of the pressure, or sorry, mm-hmm. light pink margins. And we're like, what? And then, and that's the night you said you had a level 10 pain. And yeah. we're like, no, we're not waiting with this. We're going, we're going right now. And that's when we were like having that, okay, where do we go? How do we get there? What's safest? It's Friday night. That's not ideal to be driving to, you know, into Port Elizabeth right now, you know, all these other things. And we're like, you know, pros versus con, (laughs) all this stuff. We get you in and that, that whole setting the first night, I remember, I remember my biggest shock was actually that you had no relief when they lanced open your abscess i thought for sure because of i was like well it must just be a small sliver that you know maybe got in there or you know at that point that's what we were convinced of and we're like he's going to feel so much better once they lance it and um but that just was not that's that was where we were like all right we need to really really watch this thing and we had am and pm check-ins and we had uh what else did we were doing there? We had the the daily visual with Chris as well between check-ins and the dressings. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's the I think the funny side of the story was just how crazy the South African Port Alfred scenario was. But at the same time, it was like, what the actual fuck is happening here? Like why it's like they're so nonchalant with this like oh yeah it's just easy we're gonna take care of it which almost puts you at ease but then also like they're laughing with blake like it's not a big deal but also it is painful but it is pain like it was just like the weirdest. i mean you know when you the last thing you want to hear when you walk into you know when you're you're in 10 out of 10 pain you're 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 going to the back room and it's just chaos in the in general in the waiting room and you're you, you know, you're sitting on the table and the doctor comes in wearing like a soccer uniform, essentially. And um, oh, are you going to share his first words? Because that's, yeah. that's what broke all of us. 
Yeah, I mean, so he's like, okay, let's see your foot. Like, what, are, you know, what's what's going on, whatever. And I take off my sock and I like kind of turn my foot and I'm like looking. I'm sitting on the table, so I'm looking up at him. He's looking down at my foot and I'm I'm watching his face. I'm waiting to see his reaction because at this point I'm just like, what? Like, this is the, like, what's going on? And he just from looking at my foot for about ten seconds, he looks down at me and he's like, "I'm gonna hurt you." And I'm like, "What? What?" And I'm like, "What do you mean?" And he's he's like, "I'm I'm gonna have to hurt you." And I'm like, "Hold on." I'm like, "Hold on a second. Now it's already I'm already telling you like what do you mean? And he's like, "So he makes like the so I have to slit it open." And he's like, "And get whatever is in there out of there." And I'm like. I'm like, fuck. I'm like, can you like give me a can you put me up? Can you what can you do to like so man it kills right now? Like I can't I can't I can't deal. Like I'm just like and I'm just like thinking scalpel and all this stuff. I'm like, I can't like can you put me under or like give me meds or whatever? He's like, oh, we just have to do it. There's nothing else we can do. I'm just like, man, and like, that's why everyone's kind of laughing because I'm just like overwhelmed and kind of like laughing. Is this well, actually procedure? Like Yeah. You were you were also with him. You would echo what he'd say, and then he would he would smile, and then you would laugh, and then he would say it again, and then you'd say it louder, and then he would he would start laughing, and I like uh, Matt and I are standing there going like, what is happening? What is happening right here? And we I was just like, did he just say I'm gonna hurt you? And then the nurse is like, like punking your manhood. So at the same time, she's like saying things like, "Well, you know, if you, if you can't handle it," and I'm like, "What?" She's what? I'm like, yeah, what's happening? And so I think I think the thing I think the disconnect was that I think well clearly it was misdiagnosed in that in that moment, right? So I think they were you know for the most part thinking what we were thinking, where it was like it looks like a you know a bit of an infection. We just need to squeeze it out, and it's it's done. Like why is this guy overreacting and the pain and all this stuff? Meanwhile what I think was really happening wasn't at that point, obviously is I had an infection that was deeply being rooted in the, in the ball of my foot. And there was a big abscess in there, which was making extremely sensitive to touch and all that kind of stuff. And I don't think that we analyzed it and the doctor had analyzed it to that point that that's what was happening deep within my foot. So when he's, you know, pushing on it and stuff and I'm really reacting in, in a crazy pain type of way, he's like, they're potentially thinking that I'm just a bit of like a wuss in the situation. And I'm like, I think so. That's why I think that they were maybe laughing in a sense, thinking like this guy, just this big burly guy that's overreacting and whatever. I'm, meanwhile, deep within my foot and then really going like this to an abscess that that's not how the surgery went and what needed to be done. So they were like really just reefing on an, infe <laughs> on an infection that didn't need to be reefed on. It needed to be slit open the way that the procedure was done and it needed to be local and and dug out the infection not you know reefing on this infection in my foot that was causing me to obviously as you saw react the way i was my foot was shaking like i've never like a leaf like the the pain oh, yeah. in the foot like i and, and i'm like you guys are underestimating how painful this is i like i think that's why you know but i'm trying to be like in the moment i'm laughing off because it's just like it's crazy between it was just such a clown show Oh, it was. It was nuts. And the fact, like, you laughing was making us laugh because you were laughing at what the doctor was saying. And also what he was saying was ridiculous. And then... It was crazy. And, and then, but also, it was really hard to watch how much pain you were in. And so, like, we're actually, like, Matt and I, in between things, are, like, asking the nurse, like, can't you give him an, an IM injection? And then, like, 
two minutes later, you're like, can you give me an injection of something? And she's like, yeah. And like, I'm literally like, hey, like, he's, he's twitching in pain. Like, there's got to be something you can give him, you know, that's stronger. Like, I'm not saying give him a drip line of morphine, but give him something. And, and she's like, well, we have to get through this initial phase because of this, this and this, and we have to do this. And, you know, I'm not a doctor, so I can't, I can't argue with them, but I'm also like, he definitely needs more of something because this, this is really uncomfortable. So, you know, I think that's the, that's the, you know, the interesting part here is that it was definitely underestimated as to what I had because the, 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 sur the doctor that I actually had the surgery, the surgical procedure done was when I showed him what I had based on for, for pain medication up until that point, he's like, oh, geez, man, he's like, that's why you're in so much pain. He's like, you don't, you don't, you won't, weren't given what you needed based on what you had. So that's why the surgical procedure doctor that gave me the procedure gave me 14 days of morphine. Right. So I didn't have what I needed. And that's why I was in so much pain. And the doctors didn't give me what I needed because it was they I think they underestimated what I actually had and the type of infection, the deep rooted abscess in the deep tissue. So, you know, I just did, wasn't getting the the pain meds I needed for the for the issue that I had with my foot. So crazy. Yeah. Oh, it was nuts. Uh, in the the culture shock of the waiting room and everything else that was happening around us, it set the stage for. Again, so I, I had referenced our our car accident night as the initial threshold for ten out of 10, 10 for crazy weird mm -hmm. like normal life. This set that this episode at the hospital pushed that down to an eight and put this back at a ten. So this is now the new ten threshold, which Matt and I were both like jaw dropped in shock. Like you cannot be serious. This is happening, mm. and also at the same time, you know. We went at the rec we went to this hospital at the recommendation of two of the general practice doctors. They're like, get him into this one. It'll be less crazy there. They'll see him. If not, you're gonna wait all night. You're gonna be at this other one. He's gonna be in severe pain. It might be dangerous. And we're like, okay, all right, we're going to Port Alfred. We even we even stopped at one point because uh, uh, Joe from our Curricula Foundation uh, partnership, you know, called us with the update from the other doctor, and we're like, okay, no, we're gonna do this. No, we're gonna do this. And so it was nuts. I mean, I, I just have to share a couple of notes. You know, there was a, I think the best way to say it is a little person um, who was a cop who yeah. was with like Andre the Giant walking him in. So there's a, I, I'm just going to try not to laugh because it was so ridiculous. We're sitting in the yeah. waiting room. It's me and Blake sitting in the waiting room. Matt is sitting out front of the hospital just paying attention and chilling to anything else going on, you know, like not to say it was dangerous or anything, but in the waiting room, we've got a lady who's, I think having a mental episode and she's jumping around and she's yeah. uh, saying a lot of weird things and her family's just totally cool with it. And they're sleeping on benches in front of us. And then there's a lady that starts off by sitting two seats or three seats over to the side of Blake and she's just vomiting. And vomiting. the receptionist is just watching her vomit. And then like 100. 10 minutes later, she, gets a giant silver bowl but then she's sitting right next to blake and me and blake are like oh man this is this is getting a lot and then the lady behind us poor poor gal is in some type of extreme internal pain and she's like laying on her side in the fetal position behind us and then this whole scene with the 
little person. I'm not kidding. Like, I don't know, Blake, what did you say? Like three feet tall, maybe? Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah. So he's, was... three, he's three feet tall, but he's transporting an inmate. Uh, go run for it, man. Uh, uh, he's, he's three feet tall and he's, he's transporting an inmate. that's literally like, I would guess close to seven feet tall. This like giant dude, but it gets more strange, more strange. Okay. I see them from the parking lot, walking into the reception, the dude's in handcuffs. <laughs> he's in handcuffs and he's got a freaking external attachment colostomy bag going on. And I'm like, what in the actual hell is going on? This is a Friday night at the ER room. <laughs> I was going to say, what's he doing at the ER? I don't know, bro, but he didn't, I, it was so much to take in. Cause like, this is all happening at the same time. And we're waiting mm. for Blake to get called in. And then the uh, cop who's with him is uh, for lack of a better term, um, no way physically able to, mm. uh, handle or restrain that job uh coming in that i would guess like maybe over 350 pounds sure and so i'm like is there a camera in here like literally at one point i looked at blake i was like you didn't there's no like there's no like camera or anything right like we didn't like accidentally walk into like a set like a reality show set or something strange like i'm like I'm literally looking at everything happening. I'm like, no, this is, no, this is real. Okay. No, this is happening. And I have to walk out front to Matt. I'm like, Matt, did you see what I just saw? And he goes, yeah, I have no idea what just happened. And I was like, have you ever seen that before? He's like, no, I was like, I've never seen that before. And like, it was like the most mismatched transport ever. And then of course, like I said, everything else going on. And then after all of that, the doctor's first words to Blake, dead in the eye, stone cold, I'm going to hurt you. And we're like, what is going on tonight? Like, oh my God, it is yeah, so was, off the scale. Yeah, it was a, it was a crazy, crazy night. I'll never forget just what felt fake. I, I remember, remember calling you out. I thought that you, oh, yeah. you and the doctor made a joke i was like are you guys are obviously messing with me and how you're going about this and you're like no man like i swear you couldn't stop laughing and the doctor's laughing i'm like why is everyone laughing like i'm in crazy yeah. <laughs> like, like well that's and it made me actually even laugh because i was just you know i was just saying you know like there was a point where i was looking at you like is this all happening and like i looked at mouse like have you ever seen anything like this before yeah. i've never experienced anything like this i've never heard of anything like this from anybody else and then yeah i forgot you like you made me laugh so hard because it's all so crazy. And they're like, did you put them up to this? Did you do this? Yeah, and I'm like, I swear, bro. Like, did you, is this an inside joke? Like, was this a joke? Like, Yeah, I felt, it felt so crazy. And then just the, the I think all of us under stress of mm -hmm. what was going on, we, we couldn't grasp. I'm telling you, Robert, it was like, it was just like the, our tow truck situation and the cop and how he's just like, morbidly talking about everything that's happening and how mm -hmm. oh like you guys aren't in five pieces well that's pretty cool normally yeah. you guys would be in like through a windshield and on the next vehicle <laughs> like, this is a good night yeah he's like this is just a regular friday night then i'll just do a little traffic cop stop and i'm like are you are you serious are you serious bro i've got like glass shards so that i'm pulling out of my ears and my face and i'm like really dude <laughs> 
I mean, yeah. it, you, know, you say it all. You say it sometimes. So you're, you're always like TIA. You're like, this is Africa, and like sometimes you're like, oh yeah, I'll oh, say it all the time. Know, yeah, and you're like, you're like, oh, I mean, it's so similar back home. And then like things like this happen. You're like, oh, this is different. Yeah, yeah. I, I use the TIA phrase uh, from the Blood Diamond movie in of wide variety of things. I'll say it when like the power goes out, right in the middle of me doing something that I've been working on for six hours and now I can't send it or now I can't retrieve it. And I'll say it when like the weather says bright and sunny and it's literally pouring rain on you. Um, and you know, like whatever, or I'll use it when it gets to this level and it just becomes a casual, like yep, TIA, this is Africa today. This is, this is the weather today. The weather changed. And you're just like, seriously, bro. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah. I got Fair taste of TIA, that's for sure. Oh, wow. Robert had a pretty good TIA story. I think we did. We already told that story somewhere in the podcast with uh, Natasha when she came on. Because mm -hmm. uh, Daniel, Daniel, you know, our APU manager, uh, Blake. Did he mention did this tip? Oh, of course he did. He asked oh. if you had enough toilet paper. Oh, my God. <laughs> Basically, Daniel is a he's, a, he's a comedy ninja. He sneaks up on you. Because he, yeah. he seems very formal and he seems very, like, he he's is German, right? So his sense of yeah. humor is different. Yeah, mm -hmm. but he sneaks up on you pretty good. Mm -hmm. You want to tell you want to tell Blake what he did to you on the long march. So so Robert was with us on the long march last time. Um, oh, yeah. All did the whole thing, but Daniel waited till about halfway. Yeah, dude. So we get in a car accident, right? So we get in the car accident. And the whole reason I was even in the car is because I wanted to go back to, you know, to the KCC, you know, to use the restroom. Well, we hit a cow. And so it incredibly dampens my plan to use the restroom. And then all of a sudden, like the, the countdown starts. Right. So I'm like, OK, we got to like alleviate. He's sweating. He's literally program. sweating. Yeah. We got to get out of this car accident scene so I can get back to KCC and, you know, relieve <laughs> myself. So I'm over here trying to direct traffic. I'm over here trying to like you know trying to figure dude, things out dude, i'm keep, trying to like keep in mind we just crawled out of the car like we had to pry ourselves out of the yeah, car yeah doors and robert's open. standing next to a cop who's cracking morbid jokes about us being alive and not in 15 pieces and yeah. picking up our skulls yeah. and he's like he, robert's helping a cop direct traffic like let's get it moving let's yeah. go bro come well, on let's get, done, guys. let's get out of here yeah you know because i because i have to poop right i have to go to the bathroom really bad <laughs> and and i'm and i'm like and <laughs> the worst part is um, you know, Chris and Daniel were following, they were, we, we had called them like, Hey, you know, we got in this accident or whatever, whatever, or they were behind us. I can't remember. And so they mm -hmm, were about right behind us. Yeah. There were a couple of, you know, they were right behind us. So they stopped and they're kind of there talking. And I was like, Oh, Daniel's, you know, he's the APU manager, right? He's, you know, he's pretty high up there. So I was like, I'll tell Daniel my situation. He'll tell the cop. And then they'll be like, Oh yeah. See that guy, let him go. Like he's, you know, he's, right. he's good. He's cleared. And so I, I'm like, Hey, Daniel, I was like, Dude, I got to poop. Can you can we hurry this up? And he was like, "Why are you telling me this?" And, <laughs> and so he's laughing at my like laughing in my face because he thinks it's the funniest thing ever that a grown man came to another grown man and had a car him, accident. Had a car accident. Five yeah. minutes. Five minutes after a car accident, we've pried ourselves out. Like we're all still picking glass out of our face. Yeah. And Robert <laughs> walks up to Daniel in the middle of all this chaos and goes, "Daniel, I have to poop." Yeah. <laughs> And so, and so he's laughing. I mean, Chris is laughing. I mean, and then I tell Mike and Mike's like, dude, just go. Cause it's right. It was kind of, it was near like an, not an overpass, but it was near kind of like a bridge. So on the side of the road, there was like a little bit of a valley. Mike was like, dude, just go down there and go, go to the bathroom real quick. 
And so like we were just talking like in Africa, it's very dark. I take one step off of the road, fall into a hole. I was like, nope, that's Literally, it. Nope, falls into a hole, bro. Not to mention, <laughs> go back to episode one of this podcast, the damage of introducing Chris. The trauma that Chris induced with snakes mm-hmm. in KwaZulu Natal province. Yeah, so there's snakes had, everywhere. Yeah. It scared Robert so bad that a snake was gonna bite his penis. Yeah, I was yeah. He didn't want to get out but, of the he didn't want to leave the road. And so he, the trauma from Chris in that mm-hmm. st- road trip story coming down in KwaZulu Natal province leads up to this moment where i can't talk robert into just make a plan on the side of the road dude like we're gonna be stuck I'm sweating here. I'm, I'm, i was in a panic it, you knew it was bad sweating. when getting into the car accident was the second worst thing to happen that night right right and <laughs> so like and so finally you know like the cops like all right you know after like an hour of me running back and forth and like doing lamas and stretching um we're finally able to get free right we're finally able to go and so the rest of the trip the whole time daniel's like hey robert do you have enough like toilet paper do you need some toilet paper you know you know be sure to use the bathroom before we go because you never know and like that's his running joke with me he's always like make sure i have enough toilet paper we're like 15 kilometers into that no man's land on this trip and we all stop for water and we're watching the recruits go down this uh, kind of like sand dune into like the flats of the actual beach and we're grabbing snacks and like Daniel opens his backpack and he's like, you guys got a snack? I'm like, cool. Yeah, I got one. He's like, you got a snack? Cool. He's like, cool. And then he like cracks this, this very subtle smile and he turns slowly to Robert and he, go, and he, he just slowly pulls out a toilet paper roll and goes, Robert, you good? You good? Yeah. And like, <laughs> lose it i cannot stop laughing and robert's like are you serious yeah, are you smiles with it in <laughs> i was like you brought this like 10 miles in the sand dude for this joke and he goes yeah oh that's that's a well done joke though yeah it's it really well good. done oh man that's good oh. <clears throat> uh yeah shoot well guys it's been another great episode um Robert, were there any things that, that I missed? I know like you were you had questions somewhere in the beginning about the locations, the poaching stuff, and I think you were gonna ask Blake something about the food uh, adjustment, um, mm. if you wanted to hit those. Um yeah, I would say like uh, you know, the only other question I had was just like cause well you know that you didn't like the um was it the the beef bully beef. Bully beef. Yeah, was there anything that like you like were like super into that you didn't think you'd like, or was there any like South African dishes that you ended up or like, hmm, this is actually like pretty good. Cause I know you were in the APU course, so I'm sure your food options were limited, but were there any? Yeah. I wouldn't say there was necessarily like a, I can't think of like a South African dish that like was a standout that I really l- liked. Like that was like, you know, not, not like, I don't Mike, can you think of one that maybe I'm not even thinking of, but like I, there wasn't like a standout dish that I liked. I mean, it was seemed pretty standardized. I mean, from the food that was offered, especially in the beginning, sure. I mean, it was definitely above uh, um, what I thought potentially with the mornings, the mornings were a battle for me, I think with like, just like the basic cornflakes and the, yeah, the weedy. And the warm you know, milk. What, yeah. And just, you know, for me, I, I eat obviously, back home very very different but i'm very uh conscious about things like back home like i don't drink milk i don't eat yeah. beef there's things i don't eat really unless like it's served to me is my kind of my rule i'm just very like conscious with things just based on uh, a multitude of factors but there was uh we don't have those options yeah <laughs> so yeah you know i come in where it's impossible to go into that that scenario with you know dietary restrictions based on you know 
you, you can't, you, you, if you're a vegan, you're not going there. If you're a vegetarian, like it's very hard. You can't, like you just, you can't. So that was a, it brought me back to just how I like used to have to eat. But I remember like not caring in those moments. You're so hungry with things that like the consciousness kind of goes out the window in, yeah. in those scenarios. Um, but I mean, the food, like the, the, the rationing and stuff towards the end and the, the basic food while on patrols and, and deployment and things like that. I mean, it just kind of is what it is. I'm also very, I went to school for outdoor adventure. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I'm used to, you know, camping for long expedition style trips and bringing foods and eating foods that are, you know, cannot perish and things like that. So I've been used to that before. It's just the, the bully beef and some of those things were, yeah. A little, a little bit. Yeah. Did you guys yeah. have a bunch of hot dogs when you were there? No. I straight up, I literally told them, get that out of the diet. Like, okay. I was like, I was like, nah. And not, you remember, I didn't, I wasn't chili. Instructor Chili, one day we, <laughs> we came in for a meal and he literally saw that they'd put hot dogs in, what was it, the eggs, dude? Was that what it was? Yeah. I mean, everything. And he, everything yeah. and he literally walked away from the table and he's like, I'm not doing this anymore. And like we couldn't stop laughing because like yeah. he's he's another one of people he's like just adjusts and gets with it. He's like, I can't, I cannot do this. I cannot do this. Yeah. I'm not doing it. And we just couldn't stop laughing because he's like hardcore. He's, he's missing a yeah. leg. <clears throat> he's got a bowflex leg that he's got, you know, and he, he gets through everything. He's right there with everybody. And hot dogs is the no line. And that he's just like real. absolutely not. And so we're dying. Um, I was gonna say. The one thing that I remember seeing the lights come back on uh, for you, like the, the brightness behind your eyes instead of this like tormenting moment was there was a moment we had to get you to, I think we had to, we had to set you down between treatments so you could just rest and not get on your foot. I think it was between Friday and Saturday night. And that was the first night that the APU guys, like our actual anti-poaching unit and those of us from the sergeant side were able to get away to actually go have a regular dinner at a place and we got pizza and Blake was asking like how was it what did you eat and I felt so guilty because I didn't want to tell him what I was gonna oh, eat sure. and I could yeah. tell he was like give me a sliver of hope let me let me know what you ate and so yeah, I, was like, I, remember that. I was like I got a Mediterranean pizza and he's like oh was it good I was like yeah, it was good. <laughs> and like, he's like, oh man, oh, that sounds so good. And so then we, we got you out with us when we did like the course mm -hmm. goodbye with like all of the team and management and stuff. And, and I think seeing you eat regular food that night. That, I mean, it was the, it was the, it was the draft beer. I think that was just like, uh, 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 bring me home it was like a bring me home type moment of like when i slipped it i'm just like ugh, like just like i just i deserve this oh yeah i, I deserve this the first the fear yeah the first beer that you get like it's one of those comforts you're just like oh this is so good oh yeah man. it just, just hits differently after after yeah yeah <laughs> Robert, you you always have uh, your snack pack of options that you go to. He's he's part of Team Snacky, oh, yeah. um, which consists of uh, Sergeant Christian, Robert, and Natasha. Mm -hmm. um, I have to monitor them um, at a distance to see if they're getting into the hunger phase because they start to get hangry. All right. of them, and I can look at Robert from like across the room and be like, Robert, what's the last time you had a snack, dude? He's yeah. like, dude, you, how do you know? I was like, I can see it. Like you're. 
you're starting to turn into a werewolf over here. Yeah. There's a couple of times where Mike would be like, all right, guys, we got to wrap it up. Robert needs to eat. I'm like, wait, how does he know this thing? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's Tamagotchi. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I full well know. Yeah. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, Blake, thanks again, dude. I yeah, know you, uh, you got better things to do on a, a weekend off. Uh, and appreciate, again, taking the time to come out. I wish you the best of the recovery with your foot, man. And uh, we're one hell of a trooper throughout all of it. That was a card that none of us expected to get delivered. And uh, you stayed. I think the most important thing that out of all of this is you stayed with your unit. And they needed you, even though you were in that, you know, role where you couldn't participate in everything, they still came to you every single day. Now, granted, half the time they came and they gave you shit, which was also funny, but <laughs> they, they really needed you. So I think had you have, uh, you know, said, I just need to get home. I think it would have heavily impacted the morale and the development of those guys. And they knew <clears throat> they were aware that you were staying as well with them. And mm -hmm. so, cause I look back to even the final 24 hours, the, the last dishing out of all things hell that we do. And <clears throat> you stepped in to make sure that all of them refinished their test correctly. And that was hours. Like you sat with them for hours and, uh, Mongo, he can, he can, lightly understand English when spoken, but he can't spell it and he can't read. And then, so you had Savioe who's working with him to translate from English, but he can't write in Zulu because he's Kosa. And then there's you who's translating the English in English. And <clears throat> to see you guys all working together as a team. And again, it comes back to strengths. Everybody has a different strength, but your, your, your team strength is really where it was at. You guys never gave up on each other. And we threw some heavy bombs on the guys at different times. Um, even like number four with his ankle, like, you know, we, 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 we dished out some heavy servings of, of shit yeah. for these guys to deal with. And, um, and those are calculated, but you know, you don't know that when it's coming at you and it's, you know, I'm like acting like a, you know, drill sergeant and I'm dropping F bombs at you. You're like, Holy Jesus. Like, you know, 10 minutes ago, he was, he was saying something friendly. Now he's like right up in my grill, like what's happening. Um, so, you know, I just have to say it's even, even though, you know, you couldn't physically participate after the foot injury, you never, you never left the morale of the team and you never left the core of the team. And I think that was extremely important. So, you know, don't, don't ever let yourself think that you didn't finish because you did. You still stuck with it and you you dealt through all of that with the cards that you got. And that was one, like I said, never seen it before. And I hope <laughs> we never see it again. Um, yeah. <laughs> my joke between uh, Sergeant Toomey, Sergeant Christian, and uh, Instructor Chris is that was the 2023 medical course of the year because we had so many random ones and some yeah. i just won't talk about because it's not appropriate but yeah. i'm just like whoa uh <laughs> yeah so i'm happy you're rocking a smile you're back home and you're comfy and you're feeling good and you're good spirits but um again man 
there are a lot of people that say they're going to help. There are a lot of people that say they're going to do something. And you know, I know I'm well aware not everybody can do everything they'd like to do, but ending it with just taking an action and finding a way to be involved with the resources or the time or whatever you have is really important for what's going on in conservation right now, because we are essentially running out of time. And if we fail things like elephants and rhino, which are these big iconic species that everybody knows, if they we, we do fail and they're gone, things that are of lesser species that we still care about in conservation stand no chance if we can't get the general public to buy in. And we do operate under you know, umbrella and keystone efforts. And so just again, you know, you took the time, the energy, the effort, you had to put through a lot of grit on this one and uh, you're still making it happen. So uh, just from our side, thank you for doing that. And thank you for taking the time. And, uh, you know, the instructors definitely saw that we, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't ignore that. I'll say that it was always there right. with us. No, I, no, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I just felt like it was important and it was certainly rewarding and I got out what I felt like, um, you know, I, I went there to do and understand the importance of Rangers was the, the main goal so that I could amplify that um, in messaging and, and my voice with, you know, the the platform I'm grateful to have. So I'm just trying to use the most of that and you guys helped um, me learn um the importance of rangers and the importance of um anti-poaching units and um yeah so i mean it was just a, a very very great uh trip for me to learn and walk away with that certification and um you know a lot a lot goes into that and the the, the training alone and what it takes to be a ranger uh is one i don't think oh i, I know for a fact there's probably 99 or 98 percent of the people and friends that i know that would just say you know how though this is not for me i would never do this and so the guys that do that and go through the course for one but then you know do that for the rest of their lives um and the risk that comes with that is uh not to be ignored and should be uh recognized and respected a lot more and so um walking away from that course is going to allow me to speak from not um, not for rangers now, but just you know, in, in a sense, feeling like as one uh, through going through that course, and so uh, I walk away with a, a different perspective and a different um, respect for the guys that do that every single day, just like the rest of us listening to this podcast should be if they haven't been already. Yeah, no, that nails it. I mean, I was say, well, if there was one thing that, so I know you were pretty caught up to speed on a lot of things conservation coming into the course but mm. if there's like one or two things that you now have a totally different perspective on for like what rangers are doing and how that training is and what they do daily what is that kind of big takeaway because i mean that's that's i guess another cool insight coming from your side coming into this kind of the world um yeah. in conservation what, what are some of the big things that you like i had no idea or like i just didn't realize it was this or I can't believe this is what they do or that kind of thing. Like what, what are those, those big things that are different from what you thought prior? Um, I just, you know, I think when you, when you see what looks like successful, successful conservation initiatives, which, you know, are key pieces and that's, you know, things like, um, uh, technology and like collaring of the animals and, you know, dehorning practices or procedures for 
relocations, all of those things come into play, obviously, in, in conservation, but it's such a small part. And that small part is glorified and it's the glamorous, it's what sells, what gets clicks, it's what people want to invest in when they see, um, you know, conservation programs and the helping of, of wildlife. And that seems to be what what um, garners the attention, the donations and things like that. And that's, you know, that's great. But behind, but behind all of that, sitting up in the hills, uh, in the bush, in their in their bomas, in their pickets, watching these procedures happen while they get absolutely zero recognition are the guys that are actually risking their lives to do these things that are underpaid, um, undervalued, go through crazy, hectic work environments every single day through the danger of uh, the, the big five and the elements that come with working in, in the bush, and then the pressures of what poachers bring that you could be walking around the corner one day and you're face to face with a poacher or a rhino or a lion. there's just the guys that really deserve the credit are not um, get deserving. the are not getting the recognition in, in multiple different facets facets. And I just have, and it's like, how do you amplify that in, in a, a different way? And I think, you know, from myself and just, other, I don't know. I, I don't know what what the the avenue is or what the the change needs to be to be able to amplify rangers and put them on the pedestal that they deserve um, as the main keep and stay for protecting wildlife. Um, you know, I don't know what that change is, but I think that's you know part of the purpose that I went there is to really understand what that is, so it's not undervalued. And I'll, and I'll, you know, I'll just continue to, to push that going forward as one that's now lived it and has seen it. And it's not just living through the lens of a social media and seeing a dehorning as like the mainstay is like, this is how we're going to protect. Well, no, it's the boots on the ground. The guys you aren't seeing in these videos that are actually up in the hills, in the bush, you know, hidden, tucked away that aren't getting the recognition that you deserve it. And so I'm speaking for the guys that aren't uh, on the lens all the time or aren't on the social media posts. Um, those are the guys I'm kind of speaking for that I'm understanding really do a lot more than what people think they do. Yeah, no, that nails it, dude. It's, yeah. um, I believe we've talked about it specifically when the Calvin and Hine episode with us, uh, you know, <clears throat> people do want to jump to the things that they can, they can recognize. So like night vision, drones, and tech pieces because they think it's going to work. But if you have a giant area and you have no one on the ground, that tech is worthless because they have to be trained to live and work in that environment and respond to that tech and service that tech and utilize that tech. And so we always say that the biggest building block for any protection zone for wildlife has to be rangers. And rangers have to be trained for that environment as well and then properly equipped for that area. Once you have that basis, so we're building it from the boots up, then you can look at the real environment and identify what kinds of tech enhance their operations and skill sets, and then integrating things like canines and other types of units to add more efficiency, because truly the human element of conservation is what is working, but it's not been invested in it enough because so many people want to go to a military level thing that's not even legal in a country and a suggestion that's not even ethical, you know, like, you know, I'll just sit up on a hill and shoot the poachers with a sniper rifle. It's like, no, that's yeah. not, that just isn't how, that doesn't how it works. Like you might end up shooting a 13 year old boy who's picking up uh, wood because he's, his family's freezing at night and yeah. you just said poacher. 
and not to say this is happening, but that's the extreme of what happens in that category if that's the avenue you take, which isn't even legal, and we're not even going to go down that avenue. Like, there's just a huge that mm-hmm. suggestion is worthless. Like, you're actually wasting time and you're actually just being ignorant. So, yeah. Um, but I appreciate that insight, man. And I look forward to the next thing we do. And in the meantime, rest up and get better. And maybe, uh, maybe I'll post this, uh, this reel of you and beans today and, and, uh, tag the podcast so that, Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah. It's the Yelp review of bully beef. (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, you're trying to trade out bully beef for beans and absolutely not going for it. So (laughs) it's a pretty good video. <laughs> no, well, I'm looking forward to the next time we end up doing something together. Just keep me in the loop with what projects are coming up, and if I can make myself available or of use to you in any way on projects like that, then I'm definitely all for it. Yeah, man. Yeah. And likewise, if you see stuff that we're doing and you want to reach out and say, "Hey, can I be involved in the next one of that?" or "Hey, can I be part of that?" Feel free to reach out because um, you know I definitely want anything that you're hoping to learn more about or be more involved in or see more layers because honestly 99% of all things conservation are actually going on off camera most of the time. So what actually gets to social media, especially for GCF with all of our sensitive areas and sensitive projects, it's like the lowest percentage of actually what's going on Um, and building projects and scoping all that other stuff is the, the constant, right? So hit us up. Um, no, I will. Robert, you got any closing notes, dude? Um, no, I think we've covered it all. This is, I thought we really covered our bases. I, I like this episode. Yeah, I do too, man. I, it's a good. Well, these, these, both of these episodes are great. Mm-hmm. I, I a lot of good insight, a lot of good topics. So, all right, buddy, I'll pass it off to you, Robert. You can cool. sign us out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for listening to our episode of Coffee and Conservation. Again, my name's Robert Pike. That is Mike Veal. Our special guest today was Blake Moyens. Blake, thank you so much for joining us yet again. Uh, I can't wait to do more things with you in the future on more GCF projects. But thank you so much for listening. Yeah, and if you guys haven't found us already, we're on Shopify. You can find us on Google Podcasts. You can go directly to our Instagram and our Facebook coffee underscore and underscore conservation tune in engage find our episodes tell us what you think and tell us what you want more of give us a message give us a shout say hey i really like this episode hey i would like to know more about this and we'll try to get those things plugged in but until then we'll catch you guys next time on the next episode of coffee and conservation